Hello, hello. It's once again Friday. You're watching Rantbox TV. I am your host, John Clay, and I'm joined by three very influential people in terms of what they have to say, I think, on the subject, which we've gone through quite a few different like uh, troughs and peaks with. It's obviously misogyny in the UK. It's our concluding part. And so um, I will now uh, introduce Reshma to the room, who will take us on that journey still. Reshma, take it away. Thank you. Thank you, John. Yeah, so we have gone through lots of different aspects of misogyny. And today, I think it's a, a beautiful way to conclude, which is to get three beautiful men's perspectives on misogyny, which I think is very important to, to women, um, even though it may seem as uh, we're sort of moving on in the dialogue without you. We, we can't, we can't, we can't do it without you. So this is um, a great time for us to discuss that. And I'm going to ask one personal question to each of you first, and then we'll sort of move on to the, the wider exploration, if that's okay. And I don't mean to spring it on you. Um, I'm not looking for right or wrong definitions here at all, um, but just as a woman, I, I want to give you the space as men to, to just tell me you personally, what, what you feel when you hear the word misogyny, as I said, no right or wrong, no pressure, just what you feel. Okay, let's go with Matt first, if that's okay. Oh, thank you so much. Um, okay, so my, my personal definition of misogyny, I, I feel like personally the way I would see it is it's a, a kind of attitude towards an elevation of the male viewpoint, of, of seeing that as the default almost is kind of my perception of it where because you're used to being catered to in a very specific way is just how the world works and because of that anything that doesn't facilitate a male viewpoint of the world is sort of seen as not um not the norm not the norm i think is, is the best way i Okay, thank you. Thanks for sharing. And I'm not going to feed back with all of you because I want you to just feel that this is a safe space. So I'll just go straight to Ian, please. Um, you know what, I, I want to go back in my own story. I think, I think we have to do that a lot, you know, whatever we're doing, put our cards on the table. And I think I, I, the first time I heard the word misogynist, it was used in the noun sense. It was, it was from my mom. My mom was, was a nurse and uh, it was a working class community, but at a dinner table one night, she referred to a doctor as a misogynist. And uh, I don't know how old I was, but I was young enough to not know what she meant. And I asked her what she meant and she explained this really overbearing um, kind of God complex uh, uh, man who, was, who treated the women around him terribly, but was kind of always currying favor of other men. Even if the men were, if it was a male nurse, he would be kinder to them. He would be more welcoming or more, he'd give them more, you know what I mean? He'd give them more leeway than a woman. And she just said, oh, he's a bloody, she probably prefaced it without, with the word stronger than bloody, but she said he was a bloody misogynist. And uh, it was a dinner conversation that kind of awakened me, I guess, to that word. It wasn't like we had, you know, sessions afterwards discussing the word, but I knew that stuck in my head. It was something that uh, was wrong and, you know, it was, it was directed against women. So wrong, directed against women. And that sort of stuck with you to, until now? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Just been, it just gets fleshed out, doesn't it, every day. Okay. Every day we live on this planet, we just see different examples of it, I think. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much. And John, please. So when I think of the word misogyny, I think of fear. Um, fundamentally, if I ask a lot of my friends, and I have done when we were talking about a separate issue, when we were talking about race, when I asked my white friends, like their greatest fear would be to be thought of as a racist. I think as a guy, my greatest fear is to be thought of as a misogynist. And that idea coupled with um, something which I'm sure Ian and Matt can probably relate to, we've been thrust into being the middle or the center of our narratives, right? When we're young, we're given a sword, we're given a ray gun, we're given some kind of totem of power. And so you fast forward a number of decades and you may maybe you guys haven't had this situation but I think a lot of us have in that you are in a situation where a woman is telling you that you've done something wrong 
And you may not necessarily click and think that you have done something wrong because you've been telling yourself that you are the white knight or the Superman in the situation since yay high, right? So that fear of misogyny, uh, it's a great one. And it's very easy to fall into thinking that it can be a separate entity from yourself, very much like the aforementioned example of race. Amazing. May I ask, um, is, is this somehow related to your uniform? Um, I really don't think that it's that applicable apart from that one <laughs> <laughs> citation. This gets me to so much trouble, like it's because um, Ian, you don't know, I pretty much have been wearing the same kind of clothing for what, 12 years? Jesus, that's pretty <laughs> fucking scary. That's okay. Anyway. I don't think it is, but it's happened, and I'm not going to have to <laughs> ignore it. But um, no, it's it's nothing to do with my uniform. I don't think that. <laughs> okay, so thank you. Thanks for taking that joke. It's lovely. You know, I love I love it. It's um, it's beyond eccentric. It's, it's... <laughs> <laughs> that that's exactly how to put it. It's beyond eccentric. But yes, Respa, do continue. Yes, Let's not continue with my uh, aforementioned garments. <laughs> so with this. Um... This, the interplay of, um, of man and woman and, you know, whether it's the, the chase, the scolding, you know, the, the various um, uh, languages of love that are shared between us, whether, you know, romantically or platonically. Um, um, I'm not sure if you could, can you use, Ian, you would know, can you use the word platonically like in that way, the way I just used it? Yeah, definitely, platonic love, definitely. Okay, all right, great. Just, just so I wonder, I just wondered. But um, more importantly, to come back to the romantic aspect of this interplay. Um, so, if I to, if I'm to focus on seduction just for a little while, just because that's unfortunately, and I say unfortunately, I really mean that genuinely. It's one of the things that we we focus on a lot when it comes to men and women in a particular space. Um, we seem to focus on the, the sexual exchange, the energy, the, um, the flirting, the, all of those things. And it's very hard sometimes for us to look beyond that. I'm not sure why, especially because it's, it's always been there. And do I, ever, do I think we'll ever grow beyond that? I, I don't really know, and it's such a complex one, but um, I'd like Ian to, to speak on this, if you will, please. Well, first of all, I just want to say that what John was saying about fear, I think that's at the, I think it's at the heart of misogyny, isn't it? It's fear and insecurity, you know, and I think, Matt, you were saying if you, when you're raised in a way to not fear women, to not to not have a superiority complex, to not have a Jesus complex, to not have a, you know, not, not to, to kind of work your way through those things or to have strong women around you who beat it out of you, you know, not metaphorically beat it out of you sometimes physically, but, no, but you know, this notion of it is fear and inferiority complex, which I think, I think drives men who are misogynistic and it just, they feed on that fear and that inferiority. Um, but in terms of seduction, I, I was thinking of, you know, the Me Too movement has brought up the, those issues of seduction, hasn't it? And, and ways of um, outright rape in the case of Weinstein and Dominique Strascan. And we talked about that last night, didn't we, John and Reshma about you know, Strascon rapes an African chambermaid and, and the interest in that story, let's be honest, is in him. The interest is in how this great powerful man has fallen. Very little interest was really given to her, her some, but journalistically way more time was given to his fall from grace. Um, and then I was thinking that, you know, calling out the, those kinds of actions, calling out that um, the, 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 the strategies by which um, men seduce women in a kind of a heteronormative society, but you know, it, it's, it's age old, isn't it? It's age old. And I, I was thinking, I was talking to Rashma, you know, in university, and I was an undergrad, Matt and John, and Rashma, I was, you know, 17, went to university, working class family, didn't, you know, I was, it was all explosively new to me. But we were taught Andrew Marvell's To His Coy Mistress, that poem, which is all about seduction. And it's got that famous line, um, he hears time winged, time's winged chariot hurrying near. But it was never taught to us as undergrads that this was a really, you know, uh, uh, you know, a really misogynistic play. It was a power play, you know, using um, the ephemeral nature of life to get her into bed, you know, because the speaker says, if I had time enough to dedicate to your face, to your each breast, to all of you, you know, I would spend thousands of years talking about you, praising you. Uh, uh, and of course, we don't have that time, he says, but he doesn't have that time. Time's winged chariot is hurrying near. 
So let's basically, you know, carpe diem. And it's a strategy of seduction. And that's in the 1600s. In the 1500s, you get a French author called Pierre de Ronsard, who does the same thing, tells a woman, basically addresses her and says, when you're old and sitting by the fire knitting, you know, you can at least think back and think that you loved, that you were loved by this poet. And he tells her to gather the roses, you know, gather the roses when you may or as when you can, obviously, you know, to harvest them, to harvest her virginity. And, and that's always interested me because, you know, it's really high class seduction, isn't it? But it's, it's um, instrumentalizing the fear of death that we all have to get someone into bed. So th that's the male seductive strategy, at least it's the way it's borne out in a lot of world literature. But there's a, there, in these islands, there are female voices. And I was talking about a few of them last night. There's one woman. And again, it then brings up questions of class, because I mean, I can't get away from class and economic power because I don't think you should. She's a she's a Highland aristocrat, so she's a she's from a you know the higher echelons of a Gallic clan-based society in the 1690s. She's in her maturity, and and her name's Julia Macdonald in English. She's called Sheila Snakethi in Gaelic, and so she's so she's she's got that status that, that affords her a voice, you know, in a way. But she takes head on these strategies of seduction, and I don't I've never read anybody who says that she did she know the work of Andrew Marvell she could I'm sure she could speak English because she was at higher status in the Highlands. But she takes on really misogynistic um, notions. One particular poem which was written just before her, which was all about the new work and it was basically just it's like almost like a rape fantasy and it's it's the speaker telling what all the women who will you know succumb to him. And she addresses that poem and she calls her poem against the new work. And she kind of little by just deconstructs his work every step of the way. And at one point she says, you know, if you do that, if you give into his blandishments, if you give into his seductive strategies, and it's so much better in, in Gaelic than in our, I was looking at our translation tonight, Resha, and I was kind of making notes in my book and thinking, man, if we ever get a chance to republish this, I gotta, you know, make some corrections. Cause um, she says, she says, you'll be, uh, she says, you will be raising children to that, to that rabble, to that, you could, and you, the word grask is really harsh. So she's calling the collectivity of these men rabble or scum, basically. She says, you're going to raise children for them. In another poem, she takes, the, she takes the seducer head on and she's talking to young women and she's saying, you see that good looking guy over there? And she kind of, she, he's basically a hipster in the 1690s, you know, like he's dressed, she kind of, enumerates his clothes she says he's got boots and he's got spurs and he's got a cloak and he's got lovely hair and he's got a gorgeous mouth and he's his speaking voice and she says you know and there's this amazing moment where she says if you give in to him if he gets what he wants you know he's gonna he's gonna tell you and it's almost like she's read marvel because she he's gonna tell you love um and he, she she mocks him she says love the male voice um you have tempted me since i first moved you know don't don't let don't don't um, let me fall into the grave. Take pity on me. You know, again, this seductive technique about um, we're going to die. So please sleep with me before we do. And she says, well, she says, I'll, I'll stop here. You know, she says, um, she says, when he gets his way with you, she's addressing her young female listenership. I'd say listenership more than readership in the 1690s. She says, he's going to turn with a kink in his nose like a snide you know a snide post-coital you know scorn and he's going to say I don't know her I've never seen her you know so it's an amazing poetic deconstruction of the strategies of male seduction which are underpinned by misogyny do you know power uh, fear of the woman really fear of the woman I think is at the base of it but of course the societal cost because in the 1690s if you get pregnant with your lover's child He's not going to be there to raise it. You're going to be there raising the children. So I, I just think that was, um, you know, she's like a, a proto Me Too woman, you know, it, it, speaking out on behalf of, um, of, of especially young women, because she says in her poem, I'm old. She says, you know, I'm old. I've done, I've been there. I've done that. Uh, and, and, but I'm giving you advice, you young women, as you, as you sally forth in life. And of course she's moralizing and she's from a Catholic background and she's quite, but, but she's not, that heavy on the moralizing she's much more like real politique you know real politique in terms of sex po sex politics yeah and that's amazing that is really amazing i think that it's just so interesting that not much has changed 
like I was saying just before you started speaking about um, Julia MacDonald and and she's of course featured in your book that you mentioned that you want to retranslate but I'm sure it's perfect um, I've already started reading it and I think the link's going to be under the video so um, so yeah anyone who's very interested in that check that out and I highly recommend it I have I actually turned straight to to her pages um, uh, in excitement to find out who she is and uh, like you say um, the sort of proto me too woman um, which brings up a, a really interesting conversation I had with John a few weeks ago about the kind of advice that we give our young women nowadays and do we extend a similar advice to to men I think you, you pointed that out to me John when when I was saying to you that in certain cultures we sort of um, we warn women how to sort of um, to, to be around men what sort of things to say and do in order to protect yourself and in recent times because of the unrest in London um, at present that's really the focus about how um, a lot of men might not even realize that women are taught this from a young age how to behave how to walk what to say be careful just sometimes just in passing it's not like an etiquette training I don't think we still have that that much in many cultures but just more things like um, how to keep yourself safe out there you know, mothers will pass on to daughters and, and older sisters will pass on to younger sisters and things like that. And I remember when I was talking about this with you, you said um, the person that I was speaking of, did she extend that same advice from the masculine perspective and to the young men under her care? And I said, obviously, I didn't know, but that's a very interesting question. Do you feel like speaking a little bit on that? Yeah, sure. We can talk about this. Um... What you say there reminds me of the whole explosion regarding Fight Club. Um, not necessarily the book, but the film. I am, to take us to that point, if you have, uh, let's say, we're just going to use the UK because that's the example we're actually talking about in this video. If you have a, a whole generation of men who are actually taught how to relate to women and that you lob into pop culture a film that is totally focused on their power and what they should gain, you're going to have a lot of people that don't understand that narrative, let alone the book that inspired that film. Like I'm a massive fan of what Fight Club was intended to be, as in a critique of um, society's, um, say, disavowalment of how the male psyche works. But ultimately, the way that film that was based on the book was interpreted, uh, many, many alt-rights and incel um, uh, demographics would see that as a, a reasoning to become even more emboldened, even more sure that the space that's around them is something that they have to be king or superheroic in. And if only they had um, parents who were going to give their socialization in relation to the other sex just as much as an emphasis than they would on, you know, the daughters, the, the women. Uh, the girls who had become mothers and aunties and, and grandmothers, if only they had the same kind of treatment and those men wouldn't find themselves um, listening to Jordan Peterson in the wrong way. <laughs> so. Okay, that's really interesting. And I think, um, can I just have, Matt, do you feel like responding to that specifically? Um, I mean, it's interesting, actually. I feel like there's something in 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 both the previous points we've had just there, where um, this idea of fear is is so prevalent, and I think so relevant as well, because to to come at it from a slightly different tack, the uh, the dating scene from a from a guy's perspective is very i feel like is very much hinged on fear and the fear of rejection and there is a a, a real kind of self-defense mechanism that as a guy you you kind of i'm not sure necessarily every guy builds it but i think there's a, a big propensity towards building this kind of armor where you devalue what you're getting out of a potential relationship before it even happens so that you're not harmed by the fear of rejection and so you know I I, I mean you know I, I'm sure you've met guys like that I'm sure every person in this room has met guys like this where you know it's just by the numbers you just approach as many women as you can and eventually you play the numbers game someone's going to go to bed with you and I think this really does come from a, a sense of 
fear of rejection. And so because of that, you, you kind of find these guys who dehumanize members of the other sex because if they accept that they're people, then that fear of rejection just becomes so much more real, you know? Okay. Uh, Matt, why do you think that uh, that fear of rejection is almost the be all and end all in the in the seduction game? That's a I know that's a complex question. Yeah, but in your opinion, I mean, this is a, a very poorly thought out thought, and I, I'd be interested in hearing your viewpoint on it as as a woman as well. But I, I do feel like to a certain extent, I'm not saying in any way that this is natural or the natural order of things or how things should be, but just the, the very way that biology works and that the woman has to, even if they don't have to rear the child, they have to grow the child within their body. You know, like I think it, it at a kind of a deep level, there's a lot more investment in a relationship from a female perspective than a man's perspective, where if we're going to boil it down to just sheer biology, you spread your seed and you fuck off, basically. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I, I, I feel like, it, it, I, I, you know, and, and as I say, I'm not saying this justifies anything, but I'm saying if you bring it right back to the very basics, maybe it, it starts the kernel of this difference of opinion in how investment in relationships work because it kind of influences the way men look at relationships and I do feel like there is a general propensity to definitely encouraged by all sorts of social factors as well look at relationships as a more throwaway thing whereas from a female perspective, female perspective I get the impression that it's just the, the very act of engaging in sexual intercourse is a lot more of a vulnerable position to be in, I feel, from a female perspective than a male perspective. Okay, that, that is interesting. So going back to the beginning of that thought process there, you said something um, about the actual relationship of the man and woman because he is grown inside of her. Mm. Do you feel there is any need from from the man's perspective to seek her approval or impress her other than the cultural um, pressures, social pressures? Do you think there's, there might be something more innately connecting them to that type of a relationship? I mean, it's interesting you put it that way, especially when you look at, once again, sort of reaching into the library of biology and how, you know, mating rituals work across species and how it's usually the job of the guy to kind of do his little dance to, to impress the female to then gain it, it it really does look like a kind of a, a you know a competition to win this prize which i'm not saying is healthy in any way at all but um it does seem to be a pattern that has kind of been inherited into the human species as well where the men do treat it like this game, this, this prize to be won, but also at the same time kind of fleeting and immaterial and kind of easily disposable, um, which probably has a lot, I, I think does probably have a lot of influence on, on the way guys see, see the relation of the sexes. Yeah, yeah, because um, I hope it's not... Um... I hope it's not sexist that I think this. I hope it is. And I've been thinking about it, whether it is or isn't. But I feel like because the, the women sort of have to choose one partner and can't really have several fathers for, let's say, one child so to sort of um, respond directly to what you were saying about the mating rituals, as opposed to the, the casual dating of the current sort of social norms of western uh, secular culture if you have um a competition for each woman and and she can only pick one mm. discounting that men can have several several partners and impregnate as many women as they want to even in one given night but if one can be chosen for for each woman there is definitely a competition and so you like you say you do have to impress her so 
but when you're saying a man devalues that connection, is it because really, do you really think it's because he's hedging his bets or do you think it's because of a lack of confidence that like you sort of, you don't want to, you, in a sense, pretend that you're less interested than you really are or less invested than you really are because you have very little faith that you're going to be the winner. Do you know what I mean? I, I, I yeah, I know exactly what you mean. I'm, I'm glad we're kind of pulling this away from the gutter slightly now as, as well, because I, I really didn't mean to take it in that direction. Um, <laughs> but um, yes, no, I, I, de I definitely do think that as a result of some of these forces, that, and, and it's definitely not all guys. And I, I also feel like I need to take a second here to say that sort of some of the views I've espoused here do have a kind of a very cis gender kind of bent to them. And I, I think the social effects do affect sort of a broader church than that, but it, like the discourse is coming very much from a, a very cis perspective and I'm very conscious of that. But stepping away from that, like these, I feel like this kind of competition, as we discussed, it doesn't necessarily force all guys to, to behave this way, but it does create a certain social pressure to not get over-invested, especially when guys aren't encouraged to come across as vulnerable as well. And so when you're putting yourself in this position where you are, you know, potentially seeing yourself as just performing to gain the approval of a woman, you, in that environment, I think it's understandable that some men would react to that with the attitude of, well, if I act like I don't care, then I can just pull this off because I can just move on and just take all the feelings out of it as much as I can. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. Sort of, um, there is definitely some self-preservation there, which is important, obviously, because um, uh, he has to preserve himself in, you know, even if it is just to, for, the, for the woman in, in order to procreate uh, before we even look at the, the social issues, just the actual physical need to stay alive, you know, to survive these, these rituals. And um, uh, Ian, <laughs> may I yes. ask you to respond to that directly? Because I'd love to hear your opinion on this. No, I mean, I agree with Matt. I mean, I think we've all, you know, heterosexual men have all been there growing up, you know, everyone can, I mean, I can remember dances in school where the teachers, it's like social engineering, throwing us together at too early an age and thinking we were going to hit it off and walking across a gym to Led Zeppelin Stairway to Heaven to ask a girl to dance. And she says, no. And then you have to walk all the way across the gym to your friends who are sniggering and who are, you know. Wow. Yeah, exactly. And let, I missed you know, out. That sounds oh, man. awesome. It's, it's awesome, John. And, you know, as we all know, Stairway to Heaven picks up in tempo. So it starts off as an embarrassing slow dance. And then by the end of it, you're like doing this white man boogie or something. It's really quite... Uh... But I, I mean, I think... So I want to talk about that, but I also want to go into this notion of, I think it's anchored in all men have women, mothers, right? We all come from a woman, as you said. So what, what's, what astounds me is the misogynists out there, and there are plenty, they're legion, aren't they? And they, 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 they cover the globe and they're all, they're all ethnicities and religions and lack of religions and languages, men who are misogynistic. But um, I think what's interesting is that old European, especially in the Catholic pre-Reformation Europe, and I think it's best summed up in that Italian phrase, putana madonna, you know? So there's the, the whore and the, yeah. and, the, and the Virgin Mary. And there's this weird dichotomy that some men are stuck in where, you know, they can only handle that dichotomy. So women are either objects of sexual desire, a putana, um, which even the, the sound of the word in Italian, it's just, it feels like it's disposable, like Matt was saying, it feels like it's to be thrown away. Or the Madonna, who you venerate. Your, your, your mother's a Madonna. Your sister's a Madonna. You know, remember when Zinedine Zidane gave that guy a header, he, he headbutted the Italian player. The, the Italian player said something to him about his sister or his mother or both. Um, and uh, so there's that kind of immature uh, relationship towards women. And I'm not going to say it's a Catholic Southern European phenomenon because that's grossly unfair because it's much broader than that. It's found all over the world, I think. But, I, you know, and I'm thinking in, in terms of violence against women and perpetrated against women who are considered disposable, you know, and, and what Matt was saying, you know, there is 
so example, and it's not the use it's misogyny in the UK, but in Canada, there's, there's, there's been decades of violence against Indigenous women. And even that's come over here in terms of news stories, you know. So young Indigenous women who sometimes are sex workers, but sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're just walking home from a party. Sometimes they had a drink or smoked a joint or something, and they're suddenly vulnerable. And white men, generally they're white settler men from Canada, prey upon them. Uh, they prey upon them in grossly, you know, um, uh, um, you know, exaggerated numbers, considering proportion of population. And the native women in Canada have been mourning this for decades. They had a truth. They had a commission. A royal commission was set up, and it came out with a report. But I think at the base of that is those white. I think of those white guys. You know, those guys who are raping and, and murdering. Generally, they murder their victims after. Um, they're clearly. The, the, the Indian the indigenous woman has no value for them, you know. She's clearly, she's definitely in that Putanam mold. And if you said to them, "What about your mother, your sisters?" They'd probably want to fight you if you if you brought into even mentioned their own mother, you know. And I think that is that deeply, deeply um, problematic. And I think going back to what John said, it's rooted in fear and insecurity, which then gets expressed in violence and uh, instrumentalization, commodification. Uh, um, and, and what you said, Reshma, is true. My sister, every, every woman I know of has had that talk or has somehow been inducted into the hall of safety. You know, someone has told them how to behave in public spaces, uh, not to go jogging at night, whereas the three of us men could probably easily mm -hmm. put on our shoes if we wanted to and head out right now for a jog. But, um, yeah. Yes, but I would not. Does no, that, I wouldn't consider it. No, nor would my sister, and I would be, I'd be upset with her if she did. You know. Okay, so and and you're, you being upset, um, is also very interesting because, of course, most men who have a sister would feel upset if she considered doing that, and so therefore, you know, we all know. I shouldn't say all, I think most of you know as men that it is dangerous because, and it's made dangerous because of your kind in a sense i'm just so i think yeah, of course of course, course of course um yeah so so therefore you can sort of see why this recent um unrest as i keep referring to because i don't know what else to call it right now but this um this current dialogue in the uk about misogyny and about the safety of women um has reached the level it has because of course men overall um by and large have not been um, I think invited, they have not been invited to take part in this dialogue. Um, so I, and this is my, <laughs> um, a lot of women would um, be probably, they'll, they'll be cross at me for saying this because um, I'm not sure that they'd see it this way, but um, I feel that a lot of the time men are scared um, to, to voice their opinions on this, which is why I opened by asking you what you all felt when you heard the word misogyny. Um, because in my personal life, um, people I know, when I've asked them this sort of in preparation for this talk, um, fear is the, is the word that keeps coming up. And so therefore, um, you know, you can't extend an invitation if there's fear attached. So as a woman um, or as women, we need to understand that, that when we ask a man or men to be involved in this dialogue, it may be partly our responsibility to try to allay that fear, to try and perhaps um, make the invitation a little warmer because it's a two-way street. Even if we feel we've been mistreated for centuries, um, there, has to be, there has to be give and take at this point in order to move forward. And so with this last bit, you, the last thing you said, Ian, about... Um, aggression and violence. I'd like to invite, to warmly invite John to speak on this topic, because I know it's a tough one. And um, I'm hoping that you you're, you feel courageous enough to talk about, let's say, domestic violence specifically. How do you feel about that? Well, it's very cut and dry for me. Um, but rather than saying the obvious, maybe we should look at the lower part of the iceberg. Domestic violence is a form of, uh, of abuse towards women. But often when we're looking at, um, say the occasions where our friends will talk to us about what's going on in their life or someone else's life, it's the psychological and emotional abuse, which 
doesn't seem to have received the same kind of, um, uh, say, receivership in media. Yeah. Um, and this obviously affords people who may be termed as the nice guy to get away with very insidious acts. Um, again, because they're given that sword or they're given that totem of power, some of their acts that may not be so overt can be the things that cause uh, incredible damage to their partners. Um, I, I'd like to, obviously I don't wanna do some cringe like YouTube apology video, but I've done like uh, a lot of things which in retrospect are toxic, but at the time I didn't know they were, but I can afford myself this grand narrative that because I haven't caused any physical violence to a partner that I'm somehow not part of a, a group of people that has to reflect. To talk about what you were saying before, Reshma, about how you believe that the invitation for men could be warmer, um, I don't think that it necessarily um, is easy to quantify as a, as you're calling it, a very cold and um, distant kind of um, uh, invitation to, to, to really sort themselves out. I think there's so many different categories of people um, that are within the gender of womanhood that would feel that the opportunity for change has been there for a very long time. The thing is, are men uh, able to take uh, the, the opportunity to reflect and therefore become part of that conversation or form their own conversations? So those are my thoughts spiraling away from domestic violence. Um, but I think that, as I said, that lower part of the iceberg deserves um, conversational um, uh, service. Okay, what, what's, what's the higher part of the iceberg, sorry? It's the obvious. It's that man hit that woman. That man dragged that woman off the street. That man raped that woman. We talk about these things as though they are happening because of some pantomime evil villain that we don't know. But half, half, I can't give a number, but I don't know how many of my female friends have talked about um, insidious acts that have been done to them and the, the top part of the iceberg, the, the violence, as being something that's been visited upon them when they were vulnerable by a friend or by a relative, yeah? It's not just outside of force. And it's, what I'm trying to say is I believe that men have to be aware that even though these things are happening, they can say, yeah, that's really bad. I've never done that. There are other ways to hurt women that I think ultimately deserve investigation and deserve um, ownership of. Okay, okay, that, that is, that's very interesting because I've seen um, a lot of dialogues that begin there, exactly there. Where does that first step towards that place begin? Like, um, I think we were talking from a language perspective of the difference between aggression and violence um where does the damage begin at which point and um i just want to there's two things i want to do here um so i'm going to tell you in advance what they are and then we'll see how we can work on them together so one is to just briefly touch upon ian's sister's book again because it exactly relates to this and i've stumbled upon it accidentally but of course it's um it's about where did the the harm the potential harm begin so we'll go to that but but also i want to sort of go way way down at the very base of that iceberg that you created for us as a i didn't create it i'm just saying it's there <laughs> like, <laughs> whoa, what the fuck there's only so much i'll confess to what you spied it off the starboard bow spied it off the starboard bow we shall explore this ice but we shall not name it john no no <laughs> <laughs> So let's just assume right now that we're all very innocent and lovely people right now. But if you were just to look at the smallest injustice, right? And the reason I'm, I'm asking you to each do this is because I'm going to ask Matt to be very vulnerable now 
<laughs> and um, and talk a little bit on that from a personal perspective. And I want us all to be able to empathize and not judge when he makes himself vulnerable and, and confesses to any of these possible tiniest injustices. Right. Oh, so I'm going first. Okay, no, 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 no worries. That's fine. <laughs> uh, I didn't mean like no, no. Seriously, it's fine. Um, so yeah, I, I can very easily think of one. Actually, um, I had a, a, a very minor altercation with my wife. Uh, literally, maybe half an hour and a half before we started this call, and, and it was literally just to do with um, not paying attention. Like literally. Uh, I, I'm a guy who has a lot of things going on, side projects, you know, work, whatever. And my wife is in a position where right now she's between jobs, so she's not got a whole lot to do. It's very easy to fall into a kind of a very traditional uh, gender conforming relationship role where the female does the cleaning and the cooking and stuff and the male is the breadwinner and stuff like that. And I, we fight very hard against that. But when you're in this position, it can be difficult to avoid. Um, and because of that, it can lead, like I, I, I'm not the, the best person for recall anyway, for remembering things I'm told, but it can be easy to forget the difference in scale when you are at work and somebody else has a lot to do in a very different way. And the kind of the admin of running the household is just not your domain. And so when somebody comes to you with that as something that's very important, but your head's in a total different headspace. And remembering the fact that this other person in your life doesn't have the level of social interaction that you're getting them either, because she's not in a job, she's at home. To remember the position she's in and actually pay attention I know I didn't give it the, the, the level of respect that I should have. And that neglected and turned into outrage because, oh, I'm the breadwinner. Why are you complaining? I'm working. I'm the one paying the rent. Why are you complaining? Mm. Like that outrage is not necessarily very well placed and is very ignorant to the experience of the other side of that situation and pushed to an extreme because I have, I really do try very hard to try and keep the gender balance in the household even. But in its, in its extreme, you go, oh, I'm the breadwinner. You should be servicing me. Why the fuck are you complaining? And that's a very easy pattern to fall into. Wow. God bless you. That's overwhelmed. Sorry. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, um, Ian, what you said about um, in, in the last video about your relationship with your sister, so to also possibly um, warmly invite you to, to just sort of discuss that a little bit with, with regards specifically to, to her book and her journey regarding this exact topic, if you, if you will, please. She'd be taking the piss out of me right now, thinking, why are you talking for me? Why are you speaking for me, little brother? Can I just, I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to, attend a second to what Matt said because I think it's really interesting that that outrage and I've um, I've experienced things like that but in a reverse role where in the past uh, I think I wasn't I felt like I wasn't being listened to even though both of us were in employment but I, I think the language we use you know in these in these relationships you think of it I was thinking about how I've seen women where I grew up turn to their sons and call them pussies or sissies do you know so the women have internalized this power structure. And if the boy shows any weakness, she'll say, don't be a sissy. Or, you know, I've heard women refer to a man in a relationship as being pussy whipped. You know, I've heard not men only, but I've heard women refer to a man who's overly subservient as being pussy whipped. I've heard women and men, but both refer to say about a powerful woman in a relationship. Oh, she wears the trousers in that relationship, you know? And it's, you know, so that the language we use, which you talked about earlier, Reshma, the language we use is so telling. So, you know, we have to get at people from the youngest age, don't we? We have to get at, at children when they're growing up to look at these these tropes and look at these turns of phrase that, you know, why, you know, wearing the trousers in a relationship. We all know that means in English, don't we, John? It means that they're the power. And of course, yeah. historically, men wore the trousers, unless you're in the Highlands and they wore kilts. But anyway, you know, that there's, you know, and I've, I've heard that directed. I've 
to be honest, okay, we're going to be put on, on I've heard it directed towards me in a past relationship because I was seen as being too accommodating to somebody. So that one wears the trousers and it was an admonition from a woman to, you know, get your game and play. Um, I've heard uh, not about me, but about a, a, a someone I know who's very gentle, um, uh, accommodating person referred to as pussy whip because the, the, his partner was quite domineering in many respects. So, I mean, that, that language is really, you know, at the base of so much of what we're dealing with. And I think both men and women have to own that, you know, not just, I think definitely what, what John said is true, you know, um, um, white people say they've suffered racism. Okay, I, there's a great quote from Joshua Fisherman, who's a linguist, and someone said to him, "Well, aren't you afraid when you're when you're putting all this attention into minority languages? What if the minority language is kind of oppressing the um, minority language?" And he said, "You know, I'm not I'm not worried about the big brother. I'm worried about the little one. I'm worried about the little language. I'm not worried about the English, French, Arabic. They'll take care of themselves. You know, I'm worried about the the person without power." And so. Um, but I think it behooves all of us, men and women, to look at our language, you know, and to, you know, in sexual politics. To get back to my sister, Reshma, it was, I mean, her book is all about harm and, and, and the unintentionality of harm, but nevertheless, harm ensues because the act of being, you know, alive with other people. And, and sometimes we do acts, like you said, John, we look, we, I've done the same thing. I've looked back in my past and relationships and the hurt I've caused and, and you have to own it, and but you don't know what could have come from that. You know what could have proceeded from an act of hurt, like you said, Matt, an act of outrage, maybe in the past, not with your wife now. But um, so my sister looks at that. But in terms of 18th century literature, but what I know from her as a, as a woman, as a, as a feminist, is that when we've talked about these issues, um, she obviously, you know, the violence directed towards women occupies her endlessly. She's got two daughters growing up in the states, you know, and. Uh, um, and, um, I think at the same time, however, she's a sexual being, right? She's a, she's a woman, she's, she's, she's alive. And we grew up in a very, you know, uh, we, we talked all the time. So when the Me Too movement hit, she had, you know, obvious empathy for it, but she was also questioning the fact that what about the African chambermaid? Why wasn't more made of her rape? Um, and she then we, we talked about it and she, you know I, I'm she'd be, well I'm going to quote you Sandy Lynn anyway Sandra McPherson we were talking about this sexual politics Matt and she was saying you know how is it going to happen that you did I mean how how are we going to negotiate desire in the future you know how are we going to negotiate desire is it going to be contractual is it going to be you know she was obviously pushing it out a bit but there is that notion of um Desire is a, a powerful human force uh, and it, it, it visits all of us, not just men, it visits women, but how is it manifested, I guess? How does it, how does it realize itself? And, and uh, yeah, and I mean, I, and I know that from having grown up with her, you know, we were both uh, aware of that language being used around us, you know, mothers who would turn on their sons and upbraid them for being, well, in this 1970s, working class candidate being called a sissy was the worst thing you could be called, you know? Uh, so he was lacking, even at a young age, this boy was lacking in the manly virtues. His mother wanted to see him, you know, espousing. So I don't know if I've done much to help the discussion, but I was- Oh, you have. Like, I loved what you were saying about language. I mean, for ages, the idea of saying, hey, you've got to have like some balls. Like you're, you're equating the idea of balls having, having power if you really want to talk about power talk about the womb talk yeah. about the vagina i mean you're pushing mm -hmm. a whole human out of yourself yeah. that's fucking power no john it's amazing. You know what I mean? what we should say like man get some ovaries dude you know exactly grow, grow a pair of ovaries <laughs> but yeah, even exactly. then even then maybe some of the issue is that we find ourselves putting one against the other and saying one is more powerful i've, I've just said it just then do you know what i mean as a way of trying to find some kind mm -hmm. of um balance but i don't know that's what people do when they when they when you watch on youtube uh, like an old nature documentary they normally have like this weird kind of vessel mania approach to documenting what the animals are doing because in their head <laughs> they have to make everything a fucking competition you know yeah. um but yeah just want to go off on that tangent for a moment yeah. I mean, I, I do think that that attitude of competition really does create a lot of damaging socio, like political uh, interactions. Like, it's a real shame that, like, there's this this real need to 
see women as a resource from a male perspective you know like like it, it's it's really kind of dehumanizing um and, and kind of underlies a real problem with the, with the male experience that needs to be contended with like the the entitlement to sex that that, that a lot of men feel you know like because I, I i genuinely believe it's a real thing that men are socialized to feel that we are entitled to women's bodies and it, it causes a lot of these situations and it's really really fucking sad especially you know i mean in, in any situation really but like you know coming back to the idea of the whore and the Madonna as well that uh, Ian was talking about, like uh, just the other day, I can't remember what I was watching, but someone was talking about um, this, this attitude that some men have once they get into a steady relationship, the, the actual romantic interest dries up because the woman goes from the whore to the Madonna, you know, and they're suddenly too pure to treat like that. And I feel like, both stereotypes are, are really damaging to see to see a woman as one or the other is is kind of yeah bad I mean, in both fronts what, what you're saying before and I, I have to share that caveat and that we've gone full cis in the way we're talking about yeah this. absolutely absolutely like, um essentially those archetypes the the whore and the mother archetype the only place where they're really useful now is behind closed doors and your fun time right but they can't mm. work outside of that because essentially you're asking someone to put on a performance and that performance can only be um toxic to the person because they shouldn't have to live through that way of you using them as an accessory or a proprietal tool to your ego you know mm. Well, maybe we need to talk about that being an elephant in the room. Essentially, mm. if uh, we said it earlier, that the idea of um, dating is that you're going to play the numbers so that you'll kind of avoid the, the rejection that you're going to get. The idea seems to be the only real um, like anchor point for one's happiness as a cis guy in that kind of uh, hyper-reality is to gain that person as uh, a conquest and once that has been done then you're trying to figure out what happens afterwards rather than going in there and genuinely trying to meet someone for the sake of meeting someone and the romantic element of it being um something that comes out of it as well like a, mm. a, a you know a, another level of um it, it's yeah. a difficult thing to combat i mean I, I feel like a lot of these gender relations also come from this this kind of inner this unsaid level of expectation as well. You know, like there's like, and, and this is something I see in, in relationships with friends of mine as well. Like um, for whatever reason, like me and my wife are, are sometimes seen as kind of like a, a quite a strong couple. And I think the only reason why that's, that's ever really happened is just because we work very hard on talking to each other working out what somebody expects from the other partner. And I find it, it's surprising how many people just don't actually have that conversation. And they'll come into an argument where one person expects something and the other person isn't willing to give or doesn't feel is justified. And they have the argument and then it just gets swept under the rug and they kind of move on, except the issue's never dealt. It's still there. It's still kind of this this water under the bridge that's in danger of eroding everything away. Uh -huh. Yeah, um, at some point we'll have to do videos, because it won't be one, because everyone I invite into this thing has so much to say. We'll do videos on relationships, and I think how the external pressure or idea of yourself as a couple can impact upon the relationship in sometimes negative ways. Because now, you know, Matt, yourself and your partner have been given um, this title of being, you're a great couple, you're great. We all want to be you. We want to be you all the time because you've got a great relationship. Because you've got that now as a title, when those people are not there and it's just you and your wife, you may have the, the tenacity to really enjoy that, but also to live up to it constantly. And I think, I don't know, that for me, I've, I've had situations where um, my partner is comparing us to what people have said about us and the inconsistencies there. Mm. That in itself could be quite interesting. It's very damaging. It's very difficult. I, I know exactly what you're talking about.
And that's, um, that is a very interesting point you made there, John. All the points that you've made um, have been interesting, all of you, for so the last sort of 10 minutes, just watching, you know, three gentlemen, if you don't mind my saying, <laughs> discuss <laughs> your personal sort of um, relationships with your histories with, with this topic is, is, um, is an eye-opener for me. Um, I've had, I have thought about this a lot and I have wondered what it's like when, when men open themselves up to this conversation in a, in a vulnerable manner, not in the, you know, in a showboaty um, uh, male bravado type way. And if there isn't a woman present, I know I'm present, but I deliberately stayed quiet for a while, hoping you'd forget I was here and <laughs> see, see what came of it. And, um, and it was nice, but then I started to feel a bit um, like a spy. So I thought I'd better open up and remind you I'm here. <laughs> but thank you all for sharing and being vulnerable and bless you all. Unfortunately, we've ran out of time. My alarm went off a while ago, but I didn't dare stop the dialogue. Um, so as a final thought, I, I just to conclude everything you guys have just said, um, I'm sorry, you've, you've gone from gentlemen to guys in like 30 seconds, sorry. <laughs> So um, what you all said has been um, something I would like to pass on to, to my heterosexual sisters out there that care about this particular topic from this particular perspective, especially the ones who are in relationships. Um, look at the possibilities that can occur if you allow this dialogue into your sitting rooms, into your bedrooms. Um, so taking it from the, the media or the news or the, the chat show that you've possibly been watching and bringing it into your rooms, into your personal spaces, I think would be a beautiful thing if you're not already doing it. And I think if that's the, or if it was, big if, but if it was the only thing, good thing to come of what I keep referring to as this recent unrest, I think that, that would be a very, very major step forward in that discussion. Of course, I would like a lot more to come from it. I'd like um, a full shift, if anything, of the, the gender dialogue, the dialogue on gender. I would, I would personally would love a full, full cultural shift on it, but that's perhaps for another discussion another time. So unfortunately, we'll leave it there. But fortunately, it's been a beautiful hour. Thank you all. Would you all like to just sort of introduce yourselves um, in a way of signing off? <laughs> John, you go first. Um, thank you, Reshma. Um, really interesting um, discussion there from everyone. That was really quite potent. And um, just really happy to be part of it. Um, the right people were involved for this, I think. Um, okay, so me, um, I am John Clay. If you're new to watching this video series, um, thank you for watching it. Essentially, I started it off with Alfredo, who runs Public Pressure, which is a fantastic blog. And I started off with a person who's called Deanna Avis. Um, and we had this wonderful, unique idea that we we're going to do a video series about stuff that whenever we talked about it on social media, ironically, um, when men would get together and shout us down, <laughs> we wanted to have a way of talking about certain subjects without that happening. And so Rampbox TV um, is now before you. Um, if you want to know more about me, uh, there is a description box which has a link to various things I do. Um, I've written a book, I direct music videos, short films, I do quite a few essays on various aspects of underground rock culture. Um, and yeah, that's enough. <laughs> Someone else speak. <laughs> thank you, thank you so much. Um, Ian, may I invite you to do the same, please? Thank you, Rashma. Um, I'm Ian McPherson. I'm a lecturer and a writer and uh, sometimes broadcaster and uh, a brother of a powerful older sister who has been kind of, um, <clears throat> uh, yeah, guiding me through life since we uh, came out of the womb 17 months apart. So I think, uh, you know, these discussions, I, I feel, I, re I really feel honored having taken part in both last night, which was John and I were, you know, two men amongst women and tonight Reshma's one woman amongst three men. So I think there's the, the balance, it evens out and it's just been a uh, not just the, it's been an honor, but it's also been a pleasure. It really has been to be here. So thank you very much. Thank you so much for being here also. And I, I hope that you'll continue to join us on a regular basis. It's been a, an honor and a pleasure having you.
in the ramp box room and <laughs> a very regular contributor who's been who's got um, a far longer history than I have Matt would you like to go next please well thank you so much yeah um yeah I'm Matt Matt Gaffin uh I'm in a band called Hell's Pilot but it feels a bit cheap to use this episode as some kind of vessel for what I do so instead what I'm going to do is I'm going to shout out my wife's Instagram account. Her name's Fixen. I'm sure there'll be a link down below. She's been experimenting recently with doing some tailoring. Uh, she's been making a 18th century men's shirt that we are going to share as an item of clothing. And she's doing a really amazing job with it, uh, sort of exploring becoming a tailor of some kind. So yes, I strongly advise you to check her out and the various creative endeavors she's undertaking. Can I just say, Mark, can I put a bid in on that shirt? I've got a kilt that would go amazingly with. <laughs> Beautiful. Beautiful. I love that. Thank you, Matt. Amazing. Um, I've been Reshma and um, I'm an artist and I currently work as an art therapist for the Salam Project. And uh, the focus of, of what we do nowadays is anti-radicalization and uh, working within the criminal justice system in gang mediation and education using sports mostly and other types of mentoring and um, it's been a pleasure doing this rant box session thank you all gentlemen and everyone for listening and that's it goodbye goodbye thank you bye. join us every friday rant box tv has a new episodes that's my cheap way of selling the channel because i have to do it <laughs> Press like and subscribe and have a wonderful Friday. Bye-bye. <laughs>